Welcome to Common Ground with Bill Walton, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. It's a reality that U.S. politics are likely to be a source of frustration for years to come. But even if Washington remains impervious to change for people who want to improve America, there's hope. It's not as if there are only two problem-solving sectors in America, the public sector of government and the private sector of business. There's a third way, often a better way, men and women pouring their energy and money into voluntary efforts to bring about positive change. This third way is about leveraging civil society to solve big social problems. With me today to talk about one of these initiatives are J.P. DeGantz and Lee Huey. J.P. is Executive Vice President at the Philanthropy Roundtable, where he runs the organization's Philanthropy Labs and is a co-founder of the Culture of Freedom Initiative. Prior to this, he helped Americans for Prosperity formulate strategies for the policy and issue campaigns before that, he helped lead several Koch companies' special project teams to protect and advance economic freedom. He lives in Virginia with his wife, Christina, and they're raising 10 children. Yeah. Welcome, JP. Thank you, Bill. Lee Stiles Huey is the Jacksonville City Director for the Flourish Now uh, Project, which works alongside churches and individuals to serve the people of Jacksonville. Flourish Now is a partner and beneficiary of the Culture of Freedom Initiative. Raised in a family of pastors and human services professionals, Lee grew up in and around churches and Christian agencies dedicated to human dignity and the advancement of the gospel. Along with her husband, Jason, and several colleagues, Leah is a co-author of a recently published book, Call to Freedom, which is about the compatibility of a Christian worldview with a libertarian political philosophy. Welcome, Leah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So JP, let's 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 do the personal part. Uh, ten children. Ten children. Yeah, we've we've got to get some cable. I think uh, we have we have uh, seven seven children of our own, my wife and I, and uh, we've been fortunate to be able to be in a position to also uh, raise three of my uh, siblings' children. And um, uh, they were uh, the sibling was in a position where she couldn't couldn't take care of them. And, and, uh, we were just blessed to be able to come and help her out and help those, those kids out. So definitely know a little bit about uh, what happens when, uh, when families. Well, that's, that's one of the reasons you've gotten so involved in the, in the family and, and culture and civil society solutions, your first, your personal experience with. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, a lot of times when families break down, uh, if there isn't a family there to step in and there isn't civil society solutions, the state steps in and it, State's a blunt instrument, and foster care is a, a really messy way to, to solve family problems and, and oftentimes a necessary way to solve those problems. But when, when, families, when families are able to step in and, and church institutions and civil society is able to come, come to the aid, oftentimes you have a far better outcome. And you're a firsthand example of that working. So, Leah, you described... Um, as where you come from is coming from the family business. What, tell me about the family business. Sure, sure. So both of my parents are ordained ministers, and my brother is a licensed youth pastor. And in my whole childhood, 
Uh, the church was just the fabric of, of the community that surrounded my brother and me. And my dad, before becoming a full-time minister, worked in human services. And so he uh, worked for an organization called New Day in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And it was in a brownstone downtown. And he would take my brother and me to work with us. And there was this living area that had a, a fireplace where they did the counseling. And then there was a kitchen behind that. Um, and my brother and I would play in that kitchen while my dad did the work of the church. And I, I didn't realize it then that the word for that was civil society or that it was you know, the church fulfilling its social function. But as I grew up and started getting this vocabulary and reading authors like Tocqueville, I realized that's what my family has been doing for decades. What, so I decided what, what, to jump in. What, both, both of you, what do we mean by civil society? I mean, that's a, that's a $5 word. What, what, break it down. It's it. You know, civil society is the voluntary associations that we all belong to. That um, oftentimes it might be a nonprofit, it might be a, a church, it it might just be me and five parents from my softball team mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. uh, that that jump in and take some action. It's people voluntarily organizing, yeah. whether it's a church, a community group, a sports team. Whatever. Leah, do you have? Absolutely. Well, Alexi de Tocqueville calls those things secondary institutions. So it's it's sort of the mm. that layer um, between the individual actor and the government. So groups that have done things like start schools and hospitals and libraries and mm. have just tackled some of the biggest problems by just associating with next door neighbors and looking and seeing a need and deciding mm. to do something about it. And, yeah. and civil society is a uniquely American, uh, I mm. won't say uniquely, but it's it's what defines the level, America. Yeah, mm -hmm. the size and, and vitality of civil society mm -hmm. in America is, 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 is definitely unique. Because Paul Johnson wrote a book about American history, and he made the point that even by 1900, most Americans had no dealings with government whatsoever, mm -hmm. and that everything had gotten done, all the charitable activity, all of the uh, you know, helping each other uh, happened through civil society, not through government or through mm -hmm. a business. Right. right. In our history, you don't have great... Great examples of famines wiping out tens of thousands of people. And uh, a lot of, you know, we've got the world's greatest university system, and that was largely started by, uh, almost entirely started by, by civil society. So let's talk about, uh, tell me about the philanthropy roundtable and the, and the uh, culture of flourishing or culture of freedom and, uh, and also uh, the uh, flourishnow.org. What, what, what are your organizations, and how are we going about addressing uh, the issues you want to address? Yeah, well, well the Philanthropy Roundtable is uh, really a membership organization of philanthropists from around the country interested in solving the country's greatest problems through, through charitable endeavors. And uh, the Culture Freedom Initiative is a specific project within the Philanthropy Roundtable that's trying to find replicable solutions to some of the most intractable social problems mm -hmm. facing the country that that are closely tied to human flourishing and uh, and American freedom. Mm -hmm. So that means, in a way, uh, strengthening the family, strengthening faith institutions. These are the two strong pillars of both civil society and the strongest elements of what's called uh, social capital, which is uh, our intangible connections to our family, voluntary associations, all, all those sorts of relationships that research is increasingly showing that if you have more social capital in the individual, he or she is going to be far more able to become upwardly mobile. That community is going to, going to have less multi-generational poverty and mm -hmm. all that, all of those good things. So. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Flourish Now, the nonprofit that I work for, is a partner organization and, as you said, a recipient of the Culture of Freedom Initiative. And our missional mandate is to help solve systemic poverty through empowering the local church to really get in there and, and solve difficult to solve societal problems at the local level. So the main way that we do that is by partnering with churches, coming alongside neighborhoods they're already serving, populations of people that they've already identified as those that they would like to reach out to, as well as just inviting the broader city to come and see what that church is all about. And one of the, the major programs that we do are job fairs in churches, because we've identified that about 65 or so percent of American churches have a benevolence program. So if you go and you say, I can't pay my light bill, or we need some assistance with food, 65% um, of American churches can do something immediate, but only 2% mm -hmm. of American churches have an employment ministry. So if the same family is coming back to the church month after month for that electric bill, a lot of churches are not equipped to then say, yes, actually, if you come to this job fair, or if you come to this recovery style job club, we will help you through mentorship and through that social capital that JD was or JP was talking about to thicken that layer of support around that person through the tangible love of people to solve that problem. The what I understand is that the culture of freedom really is trying to develop solutions to social issues at, at a specific local level, in your case, mm -hmm. Jacksonville and then be able to replicate that solution around the country. Find mm -hmm. out what works and not have to go and reinvent it someplace else, but mm -hmm. take what works what works in Jacksonville, Columbus, Ohio, Kansas City, Sacramento. Right. What, That's right. And it's, a, it's led by a group of business leaders, uh, folks who've been successful entrepreneurs, franchisors, uh, investors, and uh, taking that sort of business approach, a metrics-based approach, and, and applying it to some areas that seem really hairy, really intractable. Uh, so when I talk about social capital, really, it sounds like a, it's a really clean term, but, but really the, the two strongest parts of it is, is this person in a family, in an intact family? Is this person belong, does this person practice or belong to some sort of religious institution? If you have those two things, there's a lot of great outcomes that flow from it. And a lot has been written about whether it's Charles Murray, uh, in Coming Apart, or Robert Putnam in Bowling Alone, uh, Raj Chetty and his research out of Harvard talking about uh, the fragmentation of family, the disintegration of community and its connection to, to human flourishing. And uh, uh, what I think what sets the Culture Freedom Initiative apart is that we're not looking at trying to study those those issues. We think other folks have done a great job mm. of that. We're trying to roll up our sleeves and say, what can be done about it? Can can private actors jump in and help a family become uh, intact or, or or not break down? Can we? Can well, you've had some success in Jacksonville with uh, divorce rates. Yes. Talk. Let's talk about that. Sure. Sure. Well, there's four <clears throat> big measure areas that we're looking at. We want to see if we increase the marriage rate, decrease the divorce rate decrease uh, single parenthood and uh, increase uh, increase church attendance, religious observance. Mm -hmm. In Jacksonville, we've gotten a lot of traction. It's one of our three test markets. By the end of this year, we expect the, the divorce rate to be 25 to 29% lower 
than it was before the initiative started hmm. 24 months ago. That's tremendous. So, uh, that's happened almost nowhere else in the country, has it? Yeah, no, it, it's, a, it's a statistical outlier. And uh, really, how it's been done is we know sort of a, 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 an assumption that we've made is life changes through relationship. Hmm. What we want to do is see what we can do to help scale life-changing relationships in these cities. Uh, another big assumption is that there's enough content in the world to, to save the world if content alone was the solution uh, the world would have been saved a while ago. Hmm. So our value proposition is try to make that content catalytic in the format, in the form of life-changing relationships. So uh, in- Good ideas doesn't do it, changing behavior does it. That's right, that's right. And so uh, ideas are important, yeah. well, an important part of the syllogism, but, yeah. but they're not the, the, final, the final part of it, right? So, yeah. uh, so we've, before we got started in Jacksonville, we did an assessment and baselined, there was about 300 individuals had gone through in the, in the entire city uh, programs around marital enrichment, marriage uh, formation, marriage and crisis sorts of uh, ministries from parachurches and church organizations. And uh, over the course of 2016, we increased that by a, a factor of 35 in the, in the, uh, hmm. in the county. And so that uh, was significantly focused using... Uh, uh, the advances of, of big data hmm. and uh, uh, predictive science, we were able to focus a lot of that attention on the folks who were in the greatest need. So, so I think implicit in what we're saying, though, is, is you believe, I believe, that most of the solutions occur best locally. Mm -hmm. I think there's another $5 word for that, subsidiarity, which is the Catholic term. There's another term you mentioned Leah, before we got on, is it sphere sovereignty? Yeah, that was something JP and I were even talking about on the way over here. Um, and essentially that there there's different <laughs> spheres of responsibility between individuals. Everybody talks and, about sphere of sovereignty. Of course, everywhere. You're in the grocery the car, store yeah. checking yeah. out. Bananas, sphere sovereignty, yeah, yeah. 50 it's cents. A, it's a common, common thing. <laughs> it is. Um, but, but so let's talk about what is sphere sure, sovereignty. Sure, yeah. It's essentially the, the idea that there are uh, there's responsibility relegated to the individual, to families, to churches, to government, and it's about keeping those various actors in society within the proper place and allowing the free movement and action of the other actors mm -hmm. um, in the sector for which they're responsible. Um, do you have something to add to that? We've had quite a conversation about it. So yeah, no, so it, ultimately, whether it's severe sovereignty or subsidiarity, it's, it's the idea that the greatest problems and challenges that face a society for, should first be addressed by those closest to it, mm -hmm. right? And there are oftentimes folks who have the greatest knowledge, mm -hmm. the greatest passion for sol solving mm -hmm. the problem. And uh, instead of quickly uh, elevating the problem to a point where there ought to be a law or, or we need to have mm -hmm. uh, government intervention. Again, government is a pretty blunt instrument to solving, uh, to solving a lot of problems. Well, Hayek had the notion of a fatal conceit. He didn't mm -hmm. think people could sit in an office in a, let's say, Brussels in the case of Europe and sure. solve the problems of a farmer in uh, Normandy, and I think yeah. we think the people in Normandy ought to solve, although you're focused on Jacksonville, but who, people closest to their issue ought to be the people responsible for the solution. And yeah, I was looking for the quote. I talked about Tocqueville already, but he, he was talking about the idea of a central power and the ability of a large central state to solve local problems. And his words were, such a work exceeds human strength. Yeah. And so he talked about the necessity, and so did F.A. Hayek, who you were referencing, of trusting individual local actors to know those problems innately. But Tocqueville also adds this element of compassion 
that when you assist someone who is a neighbor or when you make that personal touch and build that layer of social capital with someone that the JP referenced, you develop empathy, you develop compassion. Yeah. And suddenly something that goes from the statistic of millions of people are, are on um, dependency programs, it turns down to this woman yeah. who lives six blocks from me mm -hmm. is on food stamps for right. a reason. Yeah. She's a single parent. She has four children. She's trying to raise them alone. How do we fix that? How do we get the local church involved? Well, she's unemployed. Oh, well, how do we use the local church to try to leverage networks to help her get employed? She doesn't have a car. Okay, well, there's surely a nonprofit in town that could give her one, or we could give her some bus passes. And you start suddenly seeing through that interaction that you become much more compassionate and much more in compassionate and interested in helping to solve those those problems then from the individual to the community level. Yeah, what what you're talking thing. about really is is the church is able to do, and civil institutions are mm -hmm. better able to do two big things, discern and love. Yes. And, and the state is really difficult, finds it hard to do both of those things. Yeah. Uh, love is, is something that's hard to be legislated. Yes. And, uh, and so that, those, those are big parts of this. One of the things that makes me excited about the culture of freedom is that we're not talking about just doing this in Jacksonville. You mentioned that you've got people from business who franchise backgrounds involved with it. And the idea mm -hmm. is to take what's working in Jacksonville and replicate it. Sure. Explain uh, how the colonel gets involved. Sure, in this. sure. One of you know a number of our of the business folks on this have been really involved in successful okay. franchising and Holiday, Holiday Inn. Yeah. Holiday Inn uh, Einstein Bagels. Yeah, a variety of different very uh, successful programs. Very yeah. and and uh, <clears throat> they said uh, to me in a meeting, uh, one of our one of our uh, business partners said, you know, we're trying to franchise like. Kentucky Fried Chicken franchised, to which I said, absolutely, that's exactly what we're trying to do. For the sake of everybody else in the room, can you explain how that worked? And so I had no idea how it worked, of course. And so the way KFC originally franchised was the Colonel had a great recipe. And instead of trying to build storefronts in town after town after town, he knew he had a great recipe and some great ingredients. And so he sold the franchise by taking recipes to mom and pop diners around the country. Right, that that we're looking for great, uh, great things to add to their menu, and it, analogously, there's a lot of great organs of civil society, what Evan Burke called little platoons, uh, that exist out there. The, mm -hmm. the church is certainly the, perhaps the strongest organ of civil society, but there's a lot of other civil associations and secular associations that exist. And so, what we're working to do is is develop and know the recipe that we can then mm -hmm. take to lots of other civil institutions and scale it. Well, if you could way. take a 30% reduction in divorce all over the country, you will have accomplished something big. So let me let me drill into it. So you're working with churches in mm -hmm. Jacksonville and you're counseling. Mm -hmm. In your case, you're focusing a lot on people getting back into the workforce. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're also counseling people on marriage and, and staying married. Mm -hmm. uh, you would then take this to other churches in other cities, and you would show them there'd be a playbook on how to do that, the way a franchisee has a playbook sure. from a franchisor. Is that, is that the idea? Sure, and, and there's, there's really uh, three different steps. A first step is, is we provide great advanced data uh, science to these churches, stuff that exists in the for-profit sector right now. Uh, large companies like Google and Amazon have uh, access to a lot of data. We put a lot of that data in the in the hands of, of the executive director of a uh, of a local uh, civil association. Put it in the hands of a pastor, and we can help them understand 
you know, 35% of your congregation is credit card dependent. Uh, hmm. 24% of your congregation looks like it uh, fits a high predictive model for divorce. Now, all of a sudden, the pastor or the executive director sees what's going on in his own pews or in his own membership and takes ownership of the problem. Mm -hmm. It becomes personally owned by them. That stimulates them taking their passion and action to solving the problem. Then we curate content. And we recommend great partners like Flourish Now mm -hmm. to come in and resolve certain issues that might be going on in their, in their congregation. Other great partners like Alpha USA, uh, uh, there's Family Life Ministries, uh, the Augustine Institute has great programs. Uh, so there's a variety of different off-the-shelf content that can be curated and, and live in, the, in, in a particular church or nonprofit setting. And then last is we provide what we call uh, uh, scaling help. And so what we do is, is we've been developing methods to drive an increase in attendance at a particular event or a, uh, uh, even Sunday worship. So, so Lee, we, we, mm -hmm. we say we, who is we, I mean, how many people are involved with this in Jacksonville? How many, and what yeah. do you, what, how do you, how do you, how do you marshal the uh, troops to solve these, solve these problems? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have about 10 <laughs> staff at Flourish now nationally, and we're very collaborative and, and each city is a little bit like an R and D shop. Mm -hmm. So when we began, we were founded in 2015. So we're very new. And the objective was to keep families together and to help the church be a huge part of that. And so at first, um, in our headquarters area, we were doing a foster prevention program called Safe Families for Children, which gave volunteer families within churches the opportunity to host children for temporary periods of time while parents went through periods of crisis. But it wasn't like foster care and that the parents didn't lose custody of the children that time. It was a voluntary arrangement. So they figured that out, got that down really well, were confident in that, and thought, okay, great. Well, we're preventing families from splintering in this way, surely there's more we can do. So we looked at the data, saw that about 80% of the time, the reason children had to be hosted with us was because of an economic or financial need. So we decided, uh, my leadership decided to roll out employment ministry, but they weren't exactly sure what that looked like. So we, we have some curriculum and we do recovery style job clubs in churches that can be anywhere between six and 16 weeks. But then we started trying job fairs and it took off instantaneously. It's a concept that churches get behind in the first six months of activity in Jacksonville. We've served 1,400 people. Our national average is about 56% of people within six weeks of a job fair get employed. And those people, roughly half of them that come through the job fairs are not part of a local church. So we talk about building that social capital. Think about it. If you're unemployed and you come to a church, maybe you've never been there before, and you have a great conversation with a volunteer, you, they pray for you, they encourage you, and you get a job, mm -hmm. then the next time you, you have that need for community, that church is the first place you're going to go. So we've seen some wonderful one-off stories of people ending up part of the social fabric of that church, continuing to be part of it. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting what's happening down there because, uh, Bill, you've got programming that's happening in marriage enrichment, mm -hmm. workforce development, evangelization, mm -hmm. uh, family, uh, sort of parenting skills. Uh, what I, we were chatting earlier about a, a particular church in Jacksonville is a great example of what happens when all of these things start coming together. 
Uh, Crossroad United Methodist. Yeah. yeah, we did a job fair with them in February, and you talk about how do you marshal the troops. Well, when I first got to Jacksonville, I met with a, a lot of pastors and just talked to them about what are you doing right now to solve problems you see in the how community? Do, how how do could the you do that react differently? To this, though you come in and say, well, look, you've been you've been saving souls. Now we want you to help people get jobs. What, how do they how do they react? Most of the time, they're very excited about it. Yeah. Um, they're they're invigorated because if you think about Jesus's ministry, Jesus preached and fed. He preached and healed. Mm -hmm. And so there was this element that teaching and beautiful ideas and the salvation of the soul was always tied with the meeting of the immediate material need. Mm -hmm. And so I think churches inherently know that, which is why they're so good about doing things like having benevolence ministries or having a food pantry. So I think they're excited about it because theologically people were made to work. They were made to contribute. They were made to design, to create, um, to do wonderful, beautiful, and beneficial things for society. And so if the church gets to be part of helping people to fulfill the purpose for which they were created, then they flourish. And churches, I think, have been extremely excited about that. So and that's think, been very rewarding. I think rewarding. you said before we came on that if we had the same percentage of people in the workforce now as we'd had, what, 10, 15 years yeah. ago, we'd have yeah, it was, 10 million it was more about, people? Yeah, if you had the same workforce... Participation, participation rates today, yeah. as we had in the year 2000, you'd have about 10 million more people in the workforce. That was a statistic from That's Nicholas Eberstadt, uh, uh, when you, in terms of uh, looking at the labor, uh, the Bureau of uh, of Labor's. Well, and, and you know, I think I think we all believe that Arthur Brooks is onto something with his earned success idea, mm -hmm. and that yes. uh, without work, there is no earned success. Right. Mm -hmm. It's hard to feel and, dignity too. Right. It is. And it's, so it's. Uh, I think the, so what we're doing is we've got, in my world, we've got business methods being applied to social problems mm -hmm. using the third way, and we've got big data, we've got predictive modeling, we've got a franchise concept. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I find exciting, we, I was one of your workshops, and that we talk about church, church, church attendance is highly related to human yeah. flourishing, isn't it? I mean, the it, number, it definitely there's something is. like daily, if you go to church each week, X amount of good things happen. Right. There's, there's a lot of data actually coming out of Harvard now. Uh, Dr. Harvard? Harvard, of all places. Dr. Tyler Vanderweel <laughs> has been doing a lot of research. Uh, he, and this is, a, this is a Harvard professor who said that, uh, that uh, perhaps uh, our country's biggest miracle drug is, is going to church, that mm. all sorts of public health outcomes are, are just generally better uh, for, uh, in, in, for folks who... Uh, for folks who regularly participate in some some level of religious worship, and what you see is uh, an individual's ability to withstand uh, bouts of unemployment. Your your time span of being unemployed is less if you're engaged in a religious community, and that should stand to reason because an individual in a, in a church or in a uh, attending a synagogue or, or a mosque is going to know more people, right? Yeah. And and when he or she is unemployed, is going to be able uh, to more quickly find a job. And, and so there's all sorts of, of a collateral impact. And, and, and uh, as, I, uh, as I recollect, this was a heavily peer-reviewed piece of research. I mean, it was not just somebody's opinion. Right. No, this no, no. actually this happens. Is, this, is a published, uh, this is a published piece of uh, peer-reviewed science that, that has been taking a lot of looks at uh, the impact of religiosity on, uh, on both, you know, looking at public health, and there's uh, a variety of other other mm. impacts as yeah. it relates to to employment, 
shifting gears to a related topic, we've been talking a lot about churches and Christianity and the need to bring about things through that, but I think your book, uh, Leah, Call to Freedom, is why you can be a Christian and a libertarian. Let's let's talk about that because, you know, Christians, I don't know what percentage of the country, but what would be appealing to this to somebody who's a libertarian, economic, conservative, who doesn't think of themselves as a church person? Well, um, the impetus for the book was to sort of answer that question. So there were a group of us that were part of a reading group who self-identified somewhere on the conservative libertarian spectrum, um, but who wanted to to try to, to explore further this reconciliation question, because we know there are a lot of Christians who are hesitant about the term libertarian, and there are a lot of libertarians who are hesitant about the word Christian. And, and we didn't think that that was necessary. Um, so I think that something that is appealing about the idea of a, a civil society-driven solution for, let's say, a libertarian who isn't a Christian, is that libertarians want the size and scope of government to shrink, um, but sometimes we disagree about the why and the how. Mm -hmm. And so I think something that civil society Christians, um, civil society-focused Christians have to offer is a real solution that has data that backs it up, that has case after case after case of ways that it's worked, to have government a little bit less involved in some of these spheres mm -hmm. where individuals and churches should be responsible. So even if you're not a believer, there's a utilitarian reason there to is. show that this works. Definitely, I mean, that it works. Philanthropy is necessary. Yeah. The idea of having religious institutions, I mean, Tope, I keep going back to it, but Tocqueville himself was not an inherently religious he man. A, he was a pretty smart and guy. You can, you he's can great. Consider. I love him. My husband knows. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he, he talked about the fact that religion is the first of America's political institutions because religious participation makes you more ready to solve social problems. It makes you more ready to take risks because you know that there's more than just life. There's more than just your treasure chest. There's something waiting beyond. And so when people participate in religious activities, there are great outcomes for society that are not engineered by some person in a marble palace 3,000 miles away. They're engineered by the people down the street. And so libertarians are always asking, if we get government to be small, what will we do next? Well, the next thing is to step up and take responsibility right. for what's and that, left. And that's something that a lot of times, uh, a lot of libertarians get that. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of them, a lot well, of them you, don't. You, you, were, you were for Charles Koch, who's... I yeah, for a time. Yeah, yeah, he's, a, he's a very serious libertarian. Yes. I mean, how does, how does, how does he, uh, how, does, how do you come out of that milieu into this and... Uh, which your personal, I mean, elaborate. Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, I uh, was meeting with a uh, high net worth business leader mm -hmm. uh, from California and was sharing some of the data on, on this, these social factors, looking at family breakdown, okay, and how it's closely connected to a lot of bad economic outcomes, Looking, look at it, how it's closely connected to a lot of uh, uh, different philosophical worldviews that maybe aren't consistent with uh, a free society approach to solving problems. And, and the immediate response from this gentleman was, uh, as he looked at family breakdown numbers, so it should just be, he, he flippantly said, I guess it should just be illegal then for, <laughs> for people to be born outside of, uh, outside of wedlock then. And, and we should mandate that people go to synagogue or church. That doesn't sound uh, very that, libertarian. That's not, that is not, <laughs> that was his flippant response. And okay. what he was basically speaking to is you can point out, he was trying to say, JP, you can point out these problems, but there's nothing that can be done about it. That's from, in his mind, the solution, the problem solving mm. mechanism is either yeah. the state or the individual. Mm. And he lacked an understanding of the mediating institutions mm -hmm. for solving problems. Yeah. And uh, there's a, some great examples in our own history 
of the biggest and the hairiest problems being solved by civil actors. You look at in the early 19th century, the average American consumed more than seven gallons of pure alcohol a year. Good. Okay. Heaven. So to, to put that in perspective, you're talking about a, about a 500 milliliter handle every uh, about every two weeks wow. being consumed by by uh, everyone. A historian said that that uh, the American drinks from the crack of dawn to the crack of dawn. And um, uh, so what happened uh, long, many years before there was anything like a prohibition movement, there was a temperance movement in the early, right. mm. in the early part of the 19th century. And there were uh, ph philanthropists and civil actors that started to create the, uh, the temperance societies and the anti-saloon league. There were efforts to try to help men associate without having to drink while they yeah. have fun and meet people. Uh, there were... Uh, there was money put behind creating plays and songs to help promote the idea of temperance. And the yeah. effect was long before the uh, prohibition happened. In the early 1900s, you had a reduction of alcohol consumption by 70%. Wow. Uh, and that wasn't, that wasn't because of a government program. That wasn't yeah. because government actors got involved. It was because a lot of, actually a lot of believers got involved yeah. in working together to, to create to create change. You know, slavery is another one. Uh, civil society, people, individuals, pastors, regular citizens, everybody was involved in, in, in bringing slavery to mm -hmm. an end. And, and yeah. I think people, uh, their government, in fact, was, was trying to keep slavery in place. Yeah. And so you've had the civil society. It wasn't government that brought the change. Yeah, actually, the was, first direct mail campaign was funded by an, an anti-slavery uh, Christian wow. activist who, who uh, began a mailing campaign to educate people on the problems of slavery and build wow. a national consensus. It, it, that sort of activity uh, created riots in, in, even in, in parts of the country that didn't have slavery, uh, folks who were opposed uh, to that kind of civic activism. Mm -hmm. So uh, in many ways, you, the, uh, the broad... Uh, movement abolition movement was an a, was a movement of of activists fund uh, significantly funded by great uh, philanthropists uh, like the Tappins brothers who uh, put their money where their mouth was. Uh, you, you, these these guys in many ways uh, did. Uh, we, we hear a lot about guys like George Soros or the Koch brothers today, but uh, the Tappins brothers probably had a greater. Who are the, who are the Tappins brothers? The Tappans were businessmen from uh, evangelical Christians from uh, that operated uh, uh, in Manhattan, and they uh, were devout uh, capitalists who realized that uh, there was all sorts of cultural rot going on around them. They actually uh, helped kickstart uh, the Second Great Awakening and revivals mm. around uh, around the northern part of the country. They uh, fund they. Uh, actually bought a uh, an old circus that had a lot of uh, uh, CD activity uh, uh, in Manhattan, and then uh, turned and it the into the second a, great awakening was when many Americans believed that they had to improve themselves morally and mm, had a responsibility sure. to improve society. Yeah, at, at and, large. And, I mean, right. that was something that was not in the yeah. in the. In and sometimes the, we the refer to these things. Then. Yeah, and, and sometimes I think we refer to these historic movements as if they were. Uh, naturally existing and would have happened anyways. But there's actually real people uh, created the Second Great Awakening, uh, uh, actors in civil society, churches, 
and uh, and philanthropists you know, had a huge part in stoking uh, the flames that created that uh, that renewal that brought that created the Sunday School movement. Uh, the United States of America became the most literate, uh, went from being one of the least literate to the most literate uh, nation on the planet long before public schools were were uh, universal. By by the mid 1840s, the U.S. had become become uh, the, the world's most literate because of Sunday schools uh, and the explosion of Sunday schools around the country. So, as I said at the outset, uh, there is hope. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we, we're so Very caught up so. in everything being politicized now. And If know. I might share a local example, yeah, too, love, that, yeah, that yeah, shines some light on that. Yeah. So, I think, you know, those movements are, are fantastic examples of, of how a small, maybe one person doing Sunday school and realizing this has a direct impact on literacy then spreads to become, you know, a nationwide phenomenon. And in Jacksonville, um, I've had the pleasure of working with um, a couple of churches and nonprofit organizations in a neighborhood called Brentwood. And if you're driving around Jacksonville, Florida, um, and you drive through Brentwood, you immediately see need. <clears throat> the first thought is need, and then the second thought often is hopelessness of thinking the only possible way that this neighborhood could be saved or improved is by some kind of government blight program, you know, or by some state level or even federal level law or piece of legislation that will dramatically change this neighborhood. And um, for instance, the crime rate in Brentwood is 120% higher than the national average. The unemployment rate in Brentwood is 99% higher than the national average. So it's one of those neighborhoods that it's just, the need mm -hmm. is overwhelming. So we partnered with a local nonprofit there, a ministry called Second Mile, that does after-school programs. And we partnered with Crew Inner City, which does adult development and helps adults with a, a vast variety of needs. And then two churches that are just very interested in helping people in that community live better lives because they love them. Mm -hmm. And they love them authentically. And they found out about our job fairs and said, we have to bring one of these to Brentwood because unemployment is such a problem here. Yeah. You know, single moms that just have no way to care for their children yeah. and men that want to be involved in their children's lives. But to JP's point, you know, men aren't marriageable in many instances until they have work. And so they're ashamed and they don't want to be around their sons because they don't want their sons to end up like them. So how do you break that cycle? By bringing employment. So long story short, we had a job fair in July. 284 people came. 40 got jobs on the spot. 80 people went through workshops. And that neighborhood, about three months later, got really hard hit by Hurricane Irma. And so churches and nonprofits have been helping that neighborhood to rebuild after Hurricane Irma. And I was down there and had a moment with the pastor of the Ville Church, one of our primary partners. And he mm -hmm. was cleaning up drywall and was wet from head to toe and was thinking about his own home, which had been flooded. And his first question to me whenever we had a moment alone was, when can we do the next job fair in this community? Because employment is such a necessary need. And so you talk about scale. You know, there are Brentwoods in every city in America. You can drive down the street in Philadelphia and see a Brentwood. Mm. You can drive down the streets of LA and see a Brentwood. And so I have hope because I saw that day people's lives changing. I saw women crying, ringing our opportunity bell because they had gotten jobs saying, my children, my children are going to have a better life because I came to this event. Mm -hmm. And so if we can get philanthropists and individuals and business people and volunteers rallied around the point that are rallied around the idea that we can bring hope and beauty and human flourishing to the Brentwoods in every city in America, just think of the transformation. 
It could be a beautiful thing, and it yeah. will be. It will be a beautiful you, thing. Tell us a little bit, Leah, the, the way you guys run, do the job fairs mm-hmm. is pretty neat because here you've got a church that wants to do something but yeah. maybe doesn't yet know how. Sure. And, and you guys provide a, a key uh, catalytic uh, aid to those churches to help, help get these job fairs off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. So we've partnered nationally with hundreds of businesses in Jacksonville, almost 100 different companies. And we have relationships with um, people from owners to, you know, folks on the HR team. Mm. And so a lot of churches don't know where to begin to get 30 businesses in the door to set up at a job fair. They don't know the logistics of how to do that. So we say, don't worry about it. We'll handle the marketing. We'll handle the business development. We'll handle the event planning. You worry about loving the Dickens out of the people that come through the door and loving the people in your community so well that they want to come. And so we get there the day of, we set up, and church volunteers, as many as 25, 30 church volunteers come, and they talk to every person that comes through the door. They have personal relationships that develop on the spot that sometimes last for months and months afterward. Um, and and. What we do then is basically pull the strings like a like a, a curtain um, operator at a play and let the church do their thing. But I think the most unique element is, I mentioned, we have an opportunity bell. And so when someone gets a job, they and their, their new hiring manager, their new boss, come and ring this bell together. And sometimes hmm. you'll have 200 people in the room at once, and everyone stands still. And for about 15 seconds, claps, cheers, looks hmm. at the person that just got a job, and often, you know, the person will come in like this and they'll maybe have their resume and they're shy. My name is Leah and I am looking for a job. When they ring that <laughs> bell, they explode. Yeah. And you can see on their face and their body language that they just got a new lease on life because of the opportunity they had because they get to ring that bell. And then volunteers from the church mob the person. Oh, congratulations. That's so wonderful. What's your job <laughs> going to be? Do you need clothes? Do you need a ride to get there? Well, what's next? And so you see those catalytic relationships happen and they happen in a church yeah, yeah. it's a really beautiful thing this is exciting 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 thank you um we've run out of time but how would we reach you i've, I've flourish-now.org that's right absolutely and i recommend your book called to freedom oh thank you which is available on amazon and uh it's i think it's a must read a lot of i'm going to send this to all my libertarian friends so they'll understand <laughs> Please do. Uh, and some of my Christian friends as well, yeah. so we can uh, uh, all work together effectively. JP, um, how do we reach you? Yeah, you can, as someone can uh, go to the website, culturefreedom.org. Yeah. And uh, they can also email me at jdegance, D-E-G-A-N-C-E, at philanthropyroundtable.org. Okay, and this will all be available on the website for those of you that weren't taking notes uh, quickly. Uh, but this is exciting. This is a way to bring a lot of good things to Every community in it's America. Time to stop yeah. cursing the darkness, right? We gotta grab stop. flashlights. Exactly. Run in there. Right. Okay. Here's the flashlight. That's right. Great having you guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe to Common Ground with Bill Walton on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. 
Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.